Trusting your leader when the darkness closes in. Trusting your leader when the darkness closes in. Uh, This is one of the proud achievements that I've managed since arriving in Malaysia. You may have one like it. My Mount Kinabalu summit climb certificate, as it were. Shows, you know, what an underachiever I am. I have to boast in something like that. But uh, proof to the world that amazingly, I actually managed to climb a mountain. Because at one point, it did look like I was going to fail. Uh, We had managed the first day climb to the base camp up to about 3,000 meters. And we stopped for that, uh, for that break before waiting till about 2 a.m. when we started out again up the mountain ridge so that we would reach the summit for, sunwa- uh, for sunrise. Of course, that meant climbing through pitch black darkness. And my torch, I found out having started the climb again, was rubbish. And if that weren't bad enough, there was one stretch on the path, which, w- which was so narrow, you had to basically climb and walk up single file, holding the hand of your leader assigned to you, the, the mountain guide that was taking you up on the climb. And we just had to trust that they knew exactly what they were doing step by step through the darkness to get to the summit. But some of our group just couldn't do it. It was very scary. And some fell behind and fell back to the base camp in fear. They never made it to the top. It it had been so easy following our guide in the daytime, of course, but of course some turned back when the darkness closed in. We come to our passage in Luke this morning. We see the darkness closing in on Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, our Lord, we see here that he becomes the victim of great evil. But we see also that in his response, we see that though he is a victim, he still reigns over the darkness. And that is contrasted with Peter, who we will see succumbs to fear as he faces the darkness as well, and so denies Jesus as his king. Uh, These are truly painful verses before us this morning, but if we take them on board, I believe we will be strengthened to keep on living for Christ even as the darkness closes in at times for us. Uh, We left off last week with Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, praying for strength to endure the, the darkness to come, and he had urged his disciples to pray as well, that they might be kept from the temptation to abandon him at this critical time. And now the moment has arrived. As we come to our first point, we see Under verse 47, Jesus reigns over the darkness as he calls out his betrayer. Read with me from verse 47. Whilst Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Uh, Luke's already told us about Judas and his evil scheme back in verse 4 of chapter 22. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And now the moment arrives. Under the cover of darkness, Jesus' enemies finally get their way. Uh, Judas knew where Jesus would be, and he knew when Jesus would be there. So he leads his enemies right to him. But the job is not over yet for Judas. You've got to remember, it's now... Night time 
it's dark in the garden, and so those who have come against Jesus, they're relying on lanterns uh, to see who is who. They don't want to get the wrong man. So Judas has arranged with them, he would identify them. End of verse 47, see what he does? He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Before Judas can even show him that sign, though, Jesus confronts him. He says to Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knows what Judas is doing. He calls him out uh, immediately. For Jesus, it was no surprise. He had warned his disciples earlier that night. We look just back in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He said that to the disciples during the last Supper, referring to himself, the betrayed as the Son of Man. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas knew what Jesus meant by that. He had heard Jesus use that word before when he was following him. He had said to his disciples on the road to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 44, coming up. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus, as the Son of Man, as God's uh, promised King for our world, who who will bring us the hope of life in God's rest again, for him to be the Son of Man, he had to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. He knows exactly what Judas is doing, but he is still shocked at the way Judas is going about this betrayal. He identifies Jesus to his enemies with a kiss on a cheek, this sign of great affection. I wonder if we can imagine our own brother or sister just suddenly appearing out of nowhere with your worst enemy by their side, someone who means you great harm. And and what do they do as they see you, your own flesh and blood? They, They run up to you and they give you a warm embrace, a big hug. But you realize the only reason why is so that your enemy can be sure it's you and can get to you. That's the kind of treachery Judas commits against Jesus here. It is sickening, this kiss. But his kiss was very much like the rest of his walk with Jesus, up to this point, insincere. Judas never really belonged. He's a warning to us as well. Judas was one who appeared to belong to Christ, who followed along the road with Jesus and with the rest of his disciples for for years, but in his heart, he had no real love for Christ. He was following for the sake of his own selfish concerns. And friends, we must not be like Judas. We must not be insincere in our affection for Christ. I really hope it's not true of any of us here as members of SMAC, but it might be. You know, we attend SMAC because we do genuinely enjoy the friendships that we have here. We, we might even be serving on a team because it gives us a sense of purpose. But in our hearts, we know Jesus is not on the throne of our lives. He's not our savior. He's not our king. Friends, Jesus knows who are his and those who may appear to belong, but don't. Don't fake your faith. In the end, we must all give account to Christ at the end of our lives, and nothing will be worth turning away by him. Well, having identified Jesus as his betrayer, it slowly dawns on his disciples still standing around him what is actually going on. 
Jesus is receiving from Judas the kiss of death. And, and he had prepared them for this moment. He had, he had told them, I will be taken. I will be numbered with the transgressors. But they were not prepared. We see that as they try to resist his captors. We see under our second point, seen in surrender and service. Verse 49. And when those who were around Jesus saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? In their great panic, the disciples asked Jesus, well, should we fight back? Shall we strike with the sword? Shall we defend you? Before Jesus can even answer, one of his most zealous disciples just acts anyway. Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And I'm sure you can guess which one of the disciples it was. But John confirms it for us in his account in John coming up. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Bold and boastful Simon Peter as always, who we'll see is about to have a very bad night. He just acts. He lunges. He takes off an ear of one of Jesus' captors. But Jesus isn't impressed. He says, verse 51, no more of this. Stop it. He's already told them, my kingdom will not come by the sword. I'm not going to establish God's kingdom through military might, but through myself as the son of man who will surrender himself into the hands of wicked men as the one who would suffer for the sins of the world, who would take the penalty upon himself so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost not conquer by the sword. So rather than resisting his enemies, he does the very opposite. Amazingly, verse 51, Peter's just taken this guy's ear off, and what does Jesus do? He touches his ear and heals him. He, he shows forth his awesome authority as God's son, not by calling down an airstrike on his enemies, but by healing one of his enemies as only Jesus could serving the very enemy that was seeking his destruction. It foreshadows the love of the cross to come. The moment that would appear to be the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness, but is actually the moment of his greatest strength as he takes upon our sins, that we might, he might do away with them for good. Jesus is still in control. He is reigning over the darkness here. He surrenders and he serves his enemy, restores the very one that means him harm. And now he turns to face his captors head on as we come to our third point. He is treated as a criminal, but he exposes the true lawbreakers. Come with me to verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. See, Luke, for the first time, identifies uh, the members of this crowd that's come out against Jesus. And it's a big crowd. You see, in verse 52, we, we, we have the chief priests... We have the officers of the temple. That may well have included some of the Roman guard as well. And we have the elders, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. This, this group represents the religious and political powerhouse of Jesus' day. And it's the only time in Luke where they're all mentioned together in one sentence. It's to emphasize the fact that they are a big statement against Jesus they represent so much political muscle, and they're all crowded together against just one man. And not only that, they're heavily armed as well. See how Jesus faces them, verse 52? Have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs? 
He challenges them. Why have you come against me in this way? So many of you and armed to the teeth. I mean, Jesus was no robber. He healed the sick. He cured the blind. He told his disciples to to love his enemies. Why all the muscle? Why all the ammo? It points to their desperation. That they've all grouped together on this one night to take this one opportunity that Judas has offered up to them to do away with Jesus. Because they had every opportunity to arrest him properly. See verse 53, what Jesus says? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Now it's true, Jesus has been teaching publicly day after day amidst the crowds. Why not arrest him in public like they should? Well, so it is here with the crowd that has come to capture Jesus. They show in their actions, they are the lawbreakers here, using the cover of night, away from the crowds whom they feared, so many of them armed to the teeth, despite Jesus being guilty of no crime, they are the lawbreakers. You see how Jesus responds to them, end of verse 53, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus may be the victim of their wickedness here, but he knows the hour better than his captors do. This is your hour, the power of darkness. Again, as he'd been telling his disciples all along, I will be betrayed into the hands of men. I will be numbered with the transgressors. It's all part of the plan. Though his enemies meant it for great evil, through this darkness, God will bring about the greatest good giving his son to die that we, the guilty, might go free. And so Jesus willingly humbles himself. He gives himself over to these wicked men. He's still in control. He knows what's going to come of his betrayal. He knows the darkness might have him for a moment, but the dawn will come. Jesus reigns over the darkness, but now the the focus shifts from Jesus and his authority in the face of this darkness to a a, a totally different example in Peter, who fears the darkness and so denies his Lord. Come with me to verse 54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. You know, I've found for myself and for uh, for a lot of people, we miss this little detail in the gospel accounts. We, we think that all the disciples, they just run. As soon as Jesus is arrested, they scatter. But actually, Luke alone tells us that whilst most of them did flee, Peter hangs around a bit longer. As Jesus is taken by his captors from the garden through the city to the, ho- uh, the house of the high priest Annas to await his trial, Peter follows along behind the crowd, but at a distance. He is eager to see what will become of his Lord now in chains. Verse 55, they arrive, and and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So having arrived at the high priest's house, as was the tradition, the servants, they stay outside in the courtyard while the officials take Jesus in to be questioned for the first time that night. We're not exactly sure who's sitting around the fire here in the courtyard, But but given Luke simply refers to them as as they who had just arrived, we can safely assume some of Jesus' captors are around this fire. But Peter, still with them, he feels safe enough to sit down. He thinks the crowd in the garden, it was large, it was dark. Maybe some of these guys won't recognize me. It's safe. 
but we see it isn't safe for Peter for long. Verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. Peter got too close to that fire. With his face lit up, the servant girl gives him a double take, but then starts to stare intently, and the cogs start working in her head. And then it comes to her. The very last words Peter wants to hear, spoken out loud in this crowd, this man also was with him. The girl doesn't even address Peter directly. She just tells all the others. This man was with Jesus. Those responsible for seizing him. The one who's now considered a condemned man. I mean, what would they do with Peter? Would they take him into the house for questioning as well? Perhaps he would be put in the witness box to testify against Jesus, or they'd put him in the defendant's box with Jesus, facing the same charges of blasphemy, in which case Peter would be sentenced to death. Either way, Peter is scared, and he's scared for good reason. And so he caves in. Verse 57. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Peter uses the same phrase that a rabbi would have used when throwing a member of his congregation out of the synagogue. It is a very strong statement. I do not know you. The strongest statement you could use to push someone away. Peter, in great fear, pushes Jesus away. I do not know him. Strike one. It's not enough to take the heat of his back, though. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. So not only has Peter denied that he knows Jesus, now he denies the brothers that he followed Jesus with. You are also one of them. No, I am not. The brothers whom Jesus had given for him to serve, to be the leader of, but now Peter wants nothing to do with them. Strike two. Well, Peter remains. He thinks he's done enough to remove suspicion. A whole hour passes, but now someone else is sure they know who Peter is. Verse 59, and another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now, Peter's given himself away, not because of what he has said so far, but because of the way he has said what he said. Now, back where I'm from, back in England, we have this very messed up social convention. We judge each other, us Brits, by, not by what we say, but by the way we say what we say. So we look down on others for having a different accent. It's really stupid. So southern boys like me, we frown upon northerners. To southern boys, that's those born above the River Thames. All right, we frown upon northerners like Andy Woodliffe. We consider them, we consider them to be poor, ill-educated savages, basically. <laughs> And northerners, like Andy Woodliffe, consider southern boys like me, those born below the River Thames, to be posh, privileged, stuck-up little boys who always need their mummies. It is the most stupid social convention I have ever come across. But it is real. If you've been to the UK or if you meet a British person, they will tell you it's true. We judge one another on the way that we speak. It's not a British invention, though. It's likely it's happening right here in our verses as well. The Galilean accent that Peter had. It was famously despised by Jews from Judea. And this man now calls out Peter for the third time. You see what he says? Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. He knows Peter's a Galilean because of Peter's Galilean accent. 
And this guy also knows that Jesus of Nazareth started his ministry in Galilee. Peter's accent has given himself away for the third time, he denies. The one whom he had sworn to follow, only hours before I will follow you to prison and to death, Lord. What does Peter say in verse 16? Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Just as Jesus had said, Peter denies him three times to save his own skin. Verse 61, the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. Seems Jesus is actually still within eyesight of Peter, within the line of sight. And as Jesus turns and looks at Peter, with Peter having betrayed him for the third time, Peter remembers what Jesus had said. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And that was appropriate. It it was right for Peter to be ashamed in this instance, having denied the Lord who at this very moment was being stripped, beaten, mocked at the hands of wicked men, not because he deserved it, not because he was overcome by it, but because he chose to endure it in love for sinners like Peter and like you and like me. What can we take from these painful verses this morning? First, let's recognize that Peter feared the darkness and so his faith crumbled. Peter feared the darkness and so his faith crumbled. Uh, Despite all of Jesus' warnings, how before he had said, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, I will be numbered with the transgressors, what did Peter do in the garden? He took up the sword against Jesus' captors. In desperation, in fear, he tried to prevent Jesus from being taken. And so when Jesus is taken, when he's put in chains, when he's marked as a dead man, Peter's faith in him just crumbles. All he could see was the Lord that he had hoped in, given into the hands of his enemies. He did not trust Jesus in the darkness. And so when Peter was challenged by his fellow man, when it was his own neck on the line, the world seemed like such a great threat to him. And so he denied his Lord. We still live in a dark world today, don't we? We have been reminded of that so painfully this past week, the shootings in Christchurch. And we will be praying later for those affected by that horrific tragedy. Wickedness is still rampant in our world today. And for us who seek to love and serve and make Christ known, we can expect opposition, just as the world opposed him. And like Peter, I know that when the darkness has closed in, I myself have crumbled in my faith before. I remember being back at, when I first arrived at university and I was out with my my new housemates. We hardly knew each other. We were out one night and one of them saw a church minibus driving down along the road. And as soon as they saw it, they just blurted out loud, I really hate that. Jesus and these stupid Christians. But then he remembered, we didn't really know each other. We were a a group of strangers, pretty much. So he then stepped back, and then he asked us, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, are are any of you religious? And he looked at us one by one by one by one, and he looked at me, and I just looked down at the floor. I looked at my shoes. I was scared. I was afraid. I was concerned. Why? Why? that I'd lose the respect of these guys who were practically strangers, and so I denied the Lord who laid down his life for me. 
Like Peter, who could only see the darkness closing in, I abandoned the Lord in fear. What will keep us faithful to Christ when the darkness closes in? It's not a matter of looking to ourselves for strength, that's for sure. It's a matter of us looking to our Lord who reigns over the darkness. That's what Luke has shown us today, isn't it? How Jesus was in control every step of the way as the darkness closes in. He knew who would betray him. He did not resist. He surrendered willingly. He heals his enemy's ear. He's treated like a criminal, but he exposes those who are the true lawbreakers. Jesus was in control every step of the way. And this path of suffering led ultimately to the cross where so many believed at the time Jesus had been defeated finally by the darkness. And yet it is that same cross on which Christ died that gives us as his people hope today in the face of the darkness. Because Jesus was not defeated. It's where he defeated our greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death. So that now with us trusting in him as Lord, we have the promise of life, of rest, of security, no matter what the world might throw at us. We know that because Jesus conquered the grave to never die again. And so in him we have absolute security even in the face of death. The problem is we go out into the world and we are so quick to take our eyes off Christ and the power of his cross. When we face darkness, when we face hostility for his sake, we see the world as as big and scary like this. Horrible, monstrous adversary that's going to swallow us up if we dare stand for Christ. Our college mates that might mock us, our family that might disown us, our colleagues that might make life hard for us at work. And having taken our eyes off of Christ, we can be so tempted to crumble in our faith. And that's when we've got to look to the cross, friends. How Jesus reigned over the darkness as he took it on himself, as he died in our place, that in him we might be secure, even in the face of death. It's as we prize the power of the cross. That's when we see the world for what it really is. Not a a monster that can swallow us, but a pest with no real claws. A threat that can do no lasting damage. Because no matter what the world throws at us, our life is secure with Christ. That's what Peter came to rejoice in in the end. Unlike Judas, who who never followed Jesus from the start really and so perished away from him, Peter repented. Peter came back. He rejoiced in the power of the cross. And so he wrote later in 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Peter knew in the light of the cross that no matter what he might suffer for Christ, in this life it would turn out for blessing. Do not fear, nor be troubled. Christ is enough. And another man Many years later, who rejoiced in the power of the cross was Jim Elliot, the famous missionary and martyr. He had been rejected by his family, sneered at by his friends, because instead of of embracing a life of privilege and comfort, he chose to love Christ and to take his gospel to tribal groups in Ecuador. And days before he gave his life in that pursuit, Jim Elliot wrote in his diary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot trusted Jesus in the darkness because he knew the power of the cross. 
Now, I doubt we'll have to lay down our lives for Christ this week. But whatever our world might throw at us as we resolve to rejoice in Christ and live with him as Lord and make him known as Lord, we need not fear. Just keep looking to him. Keep looking to the power of the cross, knowing that he will return in his glory. He will bring us into his rest as those who have endured, who have suffered, and who have remained faithful to him. And that is the place where suffering and pain that we've known for his sake in this life will be no more. We have every reason, friends, as we trust in Christ as Lord to keep on standing firm for him, whatever tomorrow might bring. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it pains us reading these verses and the darkness that Christ faced for our sakes in perfect obedience to you and for your glory. It pains us to see how quick Peter was to compromise brings to mind the ways in which we have failed, you and your son. We have compromised for fear of the darkness. Strengthen us, Lord, to, continually looking to, to be continually looking to Christ and rejoicing in the power of his cross, that we would be strengthened to love and serve and honor him as our Lord when the darkness closes in. We would prize him and we would look forward to life and rest in his kingdom to come. Strengthen us, we pray, for his name's sake. Amen.